My question for you this morning is, how much power can three words have? We live in a world where there are words everywhere, right? On our phones, on billboards, on TV screens, in conversation. Studies say that we exchange upwards of a thousand words at least every day. Even our worship service is dominated by words. So if our lives are so full of words, then the question is, can three words have any kind of an impact? Can the right three words in combination change a relationship that we have or our lives as a whole? Of all the words that we say each day, we're going to spend the next few weeks exploring phrases that when said by God or to one another, they have the power to transform us into more faithful, loving, healed people. So I want you to begin, before we hear the lesson this morning, to think about a time that you heard any of these phrases recently. I love you. I miss you. I was wrong. I am enough. I need help. Each of the next few weeks, we're going to explore the power of those phrases through the lens of Old Testament stories and to ask ourselves, to whom might I need to say this phrase? And how could such a simple phrase draw me closer to God or my neighbor? And we're going to begin with the big one, my favorite, I love you. So I invite you to listen now to the Old Testament story of Ruth, the first chapter found on page 230 in your Old Testament, in your pew Bibles. Listen for the ways that love shows up in this text. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to this foreign country of Moab, and they remained there for some time. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with only her two sons. They both took Moabite wives, foreigner wives. The names of their wives were Orpah and Ruth. And when they had lived there for about 10 years, Malon and Chilion also died. So that Naomi, the woman, was left with no sons and no husband. She started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had given consideration for his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she'd been living, she and these two daughters-in-law, and they were on their way back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to these daughters-in-law, go back to each of you. To your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you would find security, each of you, in the house of a new husband. 
And she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and they said to her, no, we won't return to our people. But Naomi said, turn back. Turn back, my daughters. Why? Why would you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb so that they may become your husbands? Turn back. Go your way, for I'm too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband and bear sons tonight, would you wait until they were grown? Would you refrain from marrying? No, she says, no. It has been far too bitter for me than for you. The hand of the Lord must have turned against me. And they cried again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and went away. But Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law went back to her people and to her God's return like she did. But Ruth said, do not press me to leave you or to turn from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so for me and more as well, even if death parts us. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power. Come shed abroad a Savior's love that it may kindle ours. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When was the last time you said, I love you? Maybe you said it out on your way out the door uh, to the office or to work, coffee in hand, juggling bags, bye, love you. Maybe you said it last night to your spouse or partner or children as you went to bed, good night, I love you, sweet dreams. Maybe you were talking to a relative or an aging parent, and because you're never quite sure if it's the last time you're going to talk to them, you always close your conversation with love. Maybe you said it jokingly to a friend this week after giving him a hard time about something. Love you, mean it. Sometimes we toss around this phrase and we handle it really lightly, not because we don't mean it, but because if we paused to let the gravity of the words sink in, it's the kind of phrase that changes everything. Love is the glue that holds our relationships together with God and one another. And when we say it, it has power. Not all love is made equal, of course. The way you love your cat or the way you love pizza is not the same way that you love your child or your partner or God. And English, unfortunately, makes this very hard for us, right? Because we only get one word for that whole complexity of feeling and action. But the Bible, the Greek New Testament in particular, uses not one but four different words for love to try to expand upon this definition for what it means to love. 
So the Greek understands that there is a difference between eros, the kind of passionate, adoring, romantic love, and philio, which is a more uh, mutual affection between friends, a kind of love that you share with your best friend. There's a difference between storge, a love of concern, especially the kind of love that we share among families, and agape, the selfless, unconditional, sacrificial love that we most often associate with God. The diversity of circumstance and vocabulary doesn't change the fact that all of those kinds of love have power. But the Bible and God seem to point us again and again to a particular kind of love, that agape love, the selfless, unconditional love that changes the world. And we hear that testimony of love in today's scripture readings and all throughout the Bible, really. Our call to worship and the opening hymn that we sang captures that agape love in the voice of Isaiah. We sang it in the refrain, right? I love you and you are mine. It's worth remembering that when God said those words to, I, to Isaiah and to the people of Israel, God wasn't exactly pleased with Israel. If we were reading all of Isaiah in context, we would know that God was pretty frustrated by the level of disobedience that Israel had shown And yet God offers this ridiculous love song to the people of God. You are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. We get again and again throughout the scriptures how much God loves humanity, even when we screw up, even when we fall short. And when God says it, God means it. God loves humanity so much, we get in the testimony of Scripture, that God sends his son, Jesus, to show us what love looks like up close. This big promise of God becomes love personified in the person of Jesus, the beloved. And all those gathered on the shores of the Jordan with John the Baptist, as we heard this morning, saw the clouds open and heard the voice of God say, You are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And then God told of this divine love through the prophets, and he told of God's love through Christ, and Christ showed us that divine love in his ministry. And as his ministry came to a close, he gathers his disciples in an upper room right before his death, and he tells them, as God has loved me, so I love you. My command is that you love each other. It's the truest and most profound gift of God the God who created the heavens and the earth, that God would look upon each and every single one of us and say, I love you. To live with the knowledge that we are loved gives us the power to endure, to hope, to face incredible hardship, and perhaps most importantly, to love others in return. And that's where we enter the story with Ruth this morning. If you were listening carefully to the story, you might have noticed that the word love actually appears nowhere in this morning's reading. 
If you were listening carefully, you might also have noticed that the word God appears nowhere in this morning's reading. And if you were listening carefully, you might have noticed that today's passage isn't exactly a love story. Um, It's more of like a Shakespearean-level tragedy, if you all were noticing what was happening. Naomi, we heard, had been uprooted. She had traveled to the foreign country of Moab because there was no food. And while she was there, her husband Elimelech and both sons die. So in five verses of Scripture, she experiences loss of home, spouse, children, and resource. Her name, which means pleasant in Hebrew, she asks in the book of Ruth to change to Mara, which means bitter. And there is a kind of pall of grief and death that overshadows everything we heard this morning. And so you're sitting here thinking, why in the world, Katie, did you pick this passage for the week on I Love You? But in the midst of this highly tragic story stands a woman named Ruth, a Moabite, which means that she was a foreigner to Israel, in fact, an enemy to Israel. But she had married one of Naomi's sons, and she was the one who stood next to Naomi in the collective grief that they were all feeling. In this act of love, Naomi tells Ruth and her other daughter-in-law, Orpah, go back. Leave me alone for the sake of your own survival. And Orpah ultimately agrees But Ruth, rather than running away from pain and grief and hardship, she draws near to Naomi. The Bible says that she cleaves to her. That word is used only twice in the Old Testament, and it means to get proximate, to draw near, to lean in with love. So Ruth, who has every reason to take Naomi up on her offer, to run in the opposite direction, decides instead to lean in with love. And you heard her vow that she makes to Naomi. It's often a vow read at weddings. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, there I will die. We will be buried together. For Ruth, that's what love means. Ruth's love comes with sacrifice. She leaves her own people, her own family, and the Moabite gods that she had worshipped to vow this kind of undying love for Naomi and the God of Israel. It's a love that, in my opinion, doesn't make any sense but it transforms Naomi and Ruth's worlds, and it sets them on a course of hope. Because of Ruth's agape love for Naomi, they experience return and restoration. They find, if we were to keep reading the story of Ruth, promise out of despair, life out of death, and we learn that because of this radical love of a stranger, this foreigner named Ruth, the line of David, ultimately the line of Christ, is saved. Agape love is what endures when the promise of God remains. And we learn, ultimately, through the scriptures, that Ruth becomes the beloved great-grandmother of none other than King David. 
My Old Testament professor, Kathleen O'Connor, says, you will notice that God is not a main character in the story. The action takes place among humans in their ordinary, everyday lives. But God's role is implicit in the interactions and the hidden plot of the story. Today's reading, she says, tells the story of God, hidden yet active, in human life. And isn't that so often true? Our experiences of love don't always come from this kind of divine voice opening in the clouds saying, you're my beloved. It's great if it does, but more often than not, the truth of God's love takes place in those hidden but transformative everyday encounters of our lives. Kate Bowler, a church historian and cancer survivor, writes, if we're lucky, we see God in something really mysterious like a miracle. But mostly, we see God in the regular surprises of love and forgiveness. By all accounts, the love we witnessed between Ruth and Naomi grew out of great tragedy. And we learn that love doesn't mean the absence of pain or heartbreak. In fact, sometimes that's when we understand what the depth of love actually looks like. And when we experience that kind of love, we know that God is there. Father Michael Renegar, the pastor of St. Mary's Catholic Church in Richmond, Virginia, knows a bit about what this means. When he was a college student, he was on his way home for the weekend and he stopped by to visit his grandparents. They lived in the same row house in Philadelphia that he had always known them to live in growing up. But his grandfather had had a series of strokes that left him paralyzed on one side and unable to talk or to swallow. But his grandmother was determined to take care of him at home, even though that required all kinds of work, including a feeding tube. And so on this particular day that he had made his way um, to their house, he remembers that he opened that squeaky front door and he looked in and immediately he knew that not everything was right. The goopy liquid food that, he ha that his grandfather had to be fed was splattered all over and his grandfather's face was red and his grandmother was clearly struggling to care for his grandfather. And she realized that he had entered his house and he knew that she knew she was, that he was there. And he did that like slow step back and started to leave, assuming that she didn't want him to see this kind of embarrassing situation. And then she heard, he heard his grandmother's stern voice say, don't you dare, don't you dare leave. Sometimes this is what love looks like. He writes that his grandmother taught him an important lesson that day. Love, it turns out, doesn't look away when life gets messy. Love can't look away when the room is smelly, when despair is on display, when things are falling apart. Love, his grandmother said, makes you look. So love makes you look. When you're up for the 10th or the 20th night in a row with a kid who's scared of the dark, and love makes you look when you are racing across town in rush hour traffic not to miss your kid's soccer game. 
Love makes you look when parenting doesn't look anything like what you expected, and normal is a really hard word. Love makes you look when you're wondering whether it's worth the battle to get dressed and go to church in the morning so that your kid can experience even just a little slice of God's love. Love makes you look when you watch your child smile and wave as you drop them off at college, and that same love makes you look when, they call, when that child calls after failing a test or getting in trouble. Love makes you look when you're sitting at the bedside of a loved one after you've just received really hard news, and love makes you look when your partner of decades no longer recognizes you. Love makes you look when you trek across town again and again for that aging parent or spouse who is only going to relax when you are there. And love makes you look when you say farewell and you feel a gaping absence inside because that's how powerful love is. Sometimes all of that is what love looks like. And God, it turns out, is there. In the mess, in the celebration, in the pain, in the grief, in the joy, the God of love is there. Sometimes hidden, but always present when that sacrificial agape love shows up in the ordinary acts of human love that we share with one another. And maybe it's precisely into those spaces that we can hear that voice of God say, you too are my beloved, and in you I am well pleased. May it be so. Amen.